What's up, everybody? This is Kenzie from A Voice of Equus on Instagram. And this is Abby from Truly OTTB, and you're listening to the Cowgirl Conversations podcast. As the equestrian industry continues to evolve, more questions are being asked and more focus is being placed on the welfare of our equine athletes. We're sitting down to talk about this progression, hear from fellow equestrians, and discuss how to continue to better ourselves and our horses. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the podcast. I always say this, but I'm actually really, really excited for this week's episode. We got to talk to Bailey from Joyful Dressage, and what what a time. It was so much fun. Yeah, this was a really, really great one. Um, and when I say it went on forever, I mean in like a really really good way I feel like we all just had so much to say and it was just flowing um yeah gosh I can't now I can't even I can't even remember all of what we talked about because we we talked about any and everything yeah it was awesome one of my favorites um so far I think it was really great yeah and it wasn't even like I mean like we recorded for two and a half hours but we talked for probably an hour and a half before we even recorded so yeah yeah <laughs> we did it was, it was yeah. uh, was it really that long in the beginning yeah yeah it was it just <laughs> kept going it was so much fun I feel like I walked away I, I like I learned a lot it was really good to have her perspective especially being in the dressage world and like in that competition circuit so I really really loved getting to hear from that side of things um just because it's not something that you or I are immersed in yeah exactly I have no idea about any of that if you asked me when I was like a kid I might have known a little bit more but it's all slipped my mind so it was really cool to get a different perspective I know that we haven't um connected with anybody on the podcast that's doing something like that um so it was it was neat it was neat to talk to Bailey she's one of my favorite people yeah so much fun I think we laughed half the time but um yeah so much fun definitely I'm gonna have to have her back on the podcast so um I guess let's just hop into it because this is going to be a long one in general um so get yeah, snacks get drinks short. <laughs> whatever you need to get through this um I promise you it's it's super entertaining um at least we had a lot of fun and if you guys are not already subscribed to the podcast make sure you hit that subscription and smash the notification bell so you never miss an episode and as always if you'd like to stay connected um we are on instagram kenzie is a voice of equus and i'm truly ottv thank you guys for listening oh there it is what's up guys we are sitting down with bailey from joyful dressage on instagram so excited welcome to the podcast welcome, we welcome. so excited i think your name was one of the first 
wants to come up when we Aww. were like, who are we gonna, who are we gonna have on? Well, thank you. It was I'm a so mutual, sure. mutual agreement. I think we both said it actually. I, I think, think it was actually, yeah, yeah. So I, I followed your account on my old account. Um, yes, I remember. So yeah, so I've been following you for a little while. And then when I lost the account, I kind of forgot <laughs> everyone I was following. So I've like slowly been getting back. And I think, yeah, I, I followed you not long after. So yeah, I love the horses. I love seeing everything. Amazing. I think your name came up the same day that we decided that we were going to email Warwick Schiller. So, wow, that is, yeah. um, I don't I that. deserve that kind of like <laughs> status. I appreciate it do. and I'm deeply honored. However, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's so great to be here. I'm so excited to hear that I've known Abby for a long time as an Instagram friend. And it was, it's been great to kind of get to know Kenzie a little bit more through your Instagram. I know it's been more of a recent thing, but when I see anyone in my little atmosphere start a podcast about anything horsey I automatically want to support it as much as I can that did not mean I wanted to um assert myself on your podcast but it does mean that I was honored to be asked on so thank you for having me I'm happy to be here amazing thank you for being here yeah for, for real for real um so why don't we start I'm assuming I would assume most people probably know who you are but can you kind of introduce yourself to everybody and sure. Um, I, I don't think that everyone knows who I am. It's, it's a, it's a weird little, uh, juxtaposition in my life, but I'm Bailey. I have a really long name actually, cause I got married and it's all shifted. So I've technically got like five names, I think. Um, but I run joyful dressage, which I started back in, I think it was either late 2014 or early 2015 Wow, when I was in college. <laughs> Um, and I had my first young horse that I was developing. And so I kind of, I didn't have a lot of equestrian friends or girls my age or anyone else who was producing a young horse with kind of a similar struggle. So I decided to start sharing and eventually ended up with a, a kind of a small following, which I, I love every single one of them very dearly. Um, I am a dressage writer kind of by choice and have been for the last, oh, 17 years, I think. Um, I'm an attorney by day. I work for the government here in Texas, which is super fun and sexy. And, um, I have three horses kind of in varying stages of their life. Um, my senior pony that I've had since I was a little girl, uh, I got him when I was about six. I have my FEI horse. And then I have the horse that I bred from my FEI horse who I just, all three of them complete my heart. So I've, that's pretty much it. I got a lot of little animals too, in, internal animals in my house. Love that. You've had apples since you were six, you said? Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I didn't realize. Yeah. 22 years. Oh. And how old was he when you, when you met him, when you got him? So it's a bit difficult to tell. He came, it was a kind of a fascinating little deal where my like local childhood trainer had an association with a person who kind of collected ponies and took great care of them. I'm actually still in contact with her. She's wonderful. I adore her so much. Um, and she was kind of like the broker. And so she would bring in ponies to get either experience or because they fit with one of the young riders as like a first horse or first pony or whatever. Um, 
so Apple is technically grade grade meaning that he is not registered with any specific registry he has like a usdf number but that's not a registration um and by the time we started realizing we had no idea how old he was he um, you know you can age horses by their teeth his teeth put him at anywhere between like late 20s to early 30s so he was probably between like six and ten when he came into my life there's also a story about him surviving a flood, which is real. <laughs> That's not made up um, in, I think it was either 92 or 93 when he was a young horse. So we try and kind of use like the nine, 1990 as his birth year and thereabouts. It's, wow. it's wild. So, but I got the opportunity to ride him when I was about six. I half leased him, I full leased him. And then he became a Christmas present. Thanks to my, my wonderful parents. <laughs> I love that. He's, he's the I best. Love I love him. Oh, wow. So he's, I mean, he's up there. Yeah, he has no teeth left. Aww. So one of the things that people kind of fail to realize as horses age is that their nutritional requirements change. And how do we begin to feed them in a way that still fulfills the needs, but in different manner? So he has no molars left. He's got like one on one side and maybe two kind of caddy corner on one on the other side. So he can't chew long stem forage like most horses do. So he gets a lot of soup, which is just like soaked off alpha pellets and soaked hay and, and whatever minimal amount of grain he needs to maintain his body condition. Primarily it's just soaked forage so he can drink it and maintain it. He's still got all of his front teeth. He's got kind of an overbite. It's pretty cute. Um, but so he's probably, you know, when I was little, I, I decided to make him the same age as me because I was narcissistic, I guess. And so I've made his birthday March 23rd. So I've celebrated that every year for 22 years. <laughs> so this year he'd be 29, technically. But he's probably wow. way older. Oh, I love that. He's the best. He's so cute. I got to see him last night. It just made my heart so happy. I love seeing his treats. It's like- Oh my God. <laughs> So the pony one time stole a box of rainbow nerds from me, like a really? box of them. And then he ran because he knew he was in trouble. <laughs> not in trouble. Like I wasn't going to beat him or anything, but he, like he had stolen something he was not supposed to eat. And he had rainbow foam over his mouth. I was like a teenager. Um, he's eaten French fries. He likes to steal those if you have them. His favorite right now are Rice Krispie Treats, uh, oatmeal cream pies, the little Debbie ones, of course, and kind of whatever sour candy you can bring him. So whenever I get to see him, I bring him a little treat. I think if you have reached this age, you deserve to have a sugary treat every time your person comes to see you. <laughs> 100%. 100%. Love that. It's fun. I like seeing what he'll eat and what he doesn't. And he likes the watermelon, uh, the sour patch, right? Yeah, that is a, a Misfit Farm favorite, actually. All three of them enjoy it, or the Sour Patch Kids, but the watermelons in particular are kind of a favorite of everyone. Those are like my favorite. Love, I love that. Same. If you haven't frozen them and then eaten them, mind blowing. It changes your worldview. Freezing them? I've never done that. Yeah. So if you freeze them and then you just, especially during the hot days, rather than having like sticky, icky, gummy candy, then they're cold. You can kind of suck on them like a lollipop or a mint or something like that. Amazing. And you don't thaw them out first? No, No. you just pop them in your mouth. Your mouth thaws them. 
Hmm. So, but yeah, the watermelons, our patch kids are a, a typical offering for each and every horse here. <laughs> Love that. Mine are really particular about their treats. Oh, but really? They like, they like weird stuff. Like my sister, um, Jess loves like crackers, you know, like the chicken biscuit crackers, like the oyster shaped ones, mm-hmm. those chicken biscuits. I, well, maybe they're more like rectangular. They're like people use them with dip all the time. I have it's no like, idea what you're talking about, but it sounds delicious. I'm going to send you guys a picture. Okay. So they're like, literally, they're just like crackers and they're like pretty heavily seasoned. Um, and my sister goes out there screaming Jessica and she knows that it's cracker time and she comes up for her crackers. So. That is hysterical. Hysterical. I love it so much. I would like some of these crackers to try on my horses. I'm going yeah. to surprise crackers. So please, please do send me your addresses and I will send you some. 100%. Anytime. I won't put it on the podcast, but I will text you and then you can send okay. me some crackers <laughs> just like through that. Sounds, sounds great. <laughs> yeah. I'm very excited about Wonder. that. It's, it's just, like his Cheetos, the hot ones. Oh, I love hot Cheetos. Yeah. yeah. Not a lot I, of them, obviously, but I don't think I've ever tried anything too spicy with them. Apple's my most adventurous eater when it comes to like treats. Posey is also, I call her a garbage disposal. She'll eat anything. One time she brought me a rock. Oh. Just, like had grabbed a bunch of rocks from the bottom of our creek and walked up and was like, hi. And I was like, hey, baby. And I rubbed her face and I put my hands out for her to lick me. And instead, I got a handful of rocks. So she's kind of like a garbage disposal, but Apple tends to like the salty kind of like heavily seasoned treats of any kind. So like potato chips or French fries in particular, he did eat a bite of a hamburger one time. It was, I did not give it to him. He stole it. It's not cannibalism because it's a cow. So it's okay. It was weird, but, um, he tends to kind of go for those like salty, sweet, the treats that most people kind of identify even for human consumption as being like guilty pleasures (laughs) as he should you know what as he should yeah I hope if we all reach that age we get to eat whatever the heck we want to yeah definitely um that being said what um how did you how did you get into horses to start how'd you end up with three how'd you end up leasing when you were six how'd that how does that work it's, it's kind of complicated. And I have to be honest that it comes with this like veneer of maybe privilege that people expect from, especially like a dressage rider. Um, and that's not the case at, at all. Um, when I was a little girl, I think like most little girls, you kind of become obsessed with horses in some capacity, whether it's because you meet one at like a fair or you see a book, mine was a book. So I was, I guess, two and a half or so. And apparently my grandma, who is um, one of my grandmothers, I have a I have like four. It's kind of complicated, but one of my grandmas saw a horse breed book at Costco and I, she gave it to me to, while she was like looking around and stuff. And apparently I became obsessed. They bought it for me and I made my parents read it to me every single night. <laughs> so much so that I had memorized like all of the breeds and where they came from and like color patterns and stuff like that by kind of a young age. So when I was three, they took me to get like a pony ride. There used to be this place kind of down by the San Antonio zoo it was a small stable. Of course, I, you know, kind of run out of business a little bit, probably rightfully so. 
Um, but they would do pony rides and stuff like that. So my dad took me on a pony ride on in what in hindsight is an actual Appaloosa. So it kind of predicted my life. And from then on, I could not get away from it. I, I, it, it consumed me as a human being. So my parents were a really young family. Um, I think they got married at, you know, sorry, my kitty is meowing. Um, they met when they were like 19 and 20, got married at 20 and 21, I think. And I was kind of a surprise like the next year. So it was a young family. My mom decided to stay home with us and it was this, this idea that it was something I was quite passionate about. So I did like the weekly lesson thing that everyone does. Um, and then we met someone who knew someone and I did like a pony camp over the summer or whatever it is. And it became kind of this inexorable part of who I was, even as a small girl, um, that meant that when I met my, who would be my trainer as a young writer up until I was about 18 years old from the time I was probably like five to 18. Um, she actually happened to live down the street from us and we live in a horse friendly neighborhood. So I would just walk to the barn and go ride. Um, very quickly, you know, I'm sure back then this is like costs were not nearly as bad as things are today, the inflation and all of that crap. But um, I would ride and take lessons and stuff like that, but I'd also work it off. I did stalls, I, you know, clean pastures, I did all of that stuff. The normal things that you would think of as like a kind of a working student, um, which ended up with, you know, we kind of got a deal on half leasing and then full leasing because I did so much work. My trainer ended up, you know, having a daughter herself and I babysat, of course, and I helped rehab horses for her friends that were also in the neighborhood. So I, with me being homeschooled through high school, I had a lot of time to go and do like manual labor in order to kind of reduce the expenses of actually being invested in horses. Um, that's how Apple kind of came into my life was this, we half leased him and full leased him. And I think full leasing is a great opportunity for people, especially parents who are kind of like their children are getting into it to kind of understand how expensive it is. Um, and it ended up, you know, Apple's not worth much even now or then he really like has no monetary value, but he has, he's absolutely priceless to us. Um, so I can't imagine they paid a ton for him, but they paid a, a good chunk as a young family to bring him into my life. So I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, my trainer also bred trocaners at the time, and I've got to be a part of the breeding processes and working with young horses. Eventually they realized how, um, I could write a book and I wasn't scared. <laughs> so I wrote a lot of young horses and tried to put foundations on them, um, which led to my second horse coming into my life, which I actually did by myself. And then for a song though, that was ridiculous. No one should have let me pay that little or let a 14 year old decide to buy a horse. <laughs> Um, and then I became very invested in breeding and all of that. So uh, before I went to law school, I decided to, to breed my mare after heavy involvement in the American Tracaner Association and um, lots of research, tons and tons of research. So I bred my mare and came out with a perfect, perfect filly. So I now ended up with, with three of them. <laughs> it's kind of a long story for, for these three horses, but they, they both contribute something really meaningful to, to who I am as a person and as a writer. So. Yeah. I, 
I love that. I think everyone has those horses that have shaped who they are. Yeah. Like, with where you are now. Absolutely. 100%. And there's this whole idea of like of heart horses, right? And I, I think that I've been lucky enough to have three in under 30 years. And that makes me feel like so warm and fuzzy and weepy. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it was never an easy financial thing. It was, it was always a lot of hard work. It was always a lot of commitment. It was a lot of sacrifice here and there. So it's not like I, my family was able to go out and buy young rider horses or competition ready horses for dressage or anything like that. I, I did what I could with what I had and it just happened to be kind of successful. Yeah. I think that's, that's great. Yeah. To work for it instead of just have it handed to you, you appreciate it so much more. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, the whole idea of a schoolmasters is really interesting. Um, personally, it's not something that's ever been a part of my life because I didn't have that opportunity, but now I'm giving that opportunity to someone else. And it's really interesting to see a young writer kind of grapple with the responsibility of a schoolmaster and how a, a traditional schoolmaster is like a pony that's going to pack you around and make you look good all the time, but a proper schoolmaster is going to teach you. And so it's really interesting to kind of see their dichotomy as they work together and how to kind of educate the next generation on what this horse has to offer and how much the horse holds back because she knows the rider is uneducated. It's, re- it's a really fascinating interaction. I, it's, I love it. So is, is Joy like really good at doing that? Yeah. Um, Joy is a, is a really particular personality. I, she always has been, she is quite introverted as a horse. She's not very friendly to a lot of people. She's never been mean, but she had, (laughs) it was a joke with a friend of mine that if I was ever to make a sales ad, it would be, um, knows the differences between right and wrong. You're always wrong. And she's always right. (laughs) And she's made that very clear. And that's the only reason that the situation has worked out the way that it has, because she has chosen not to work with people. She's really good at reading them, but she took a, took a shine to use like an old person term to the young writer who's leasing her now, because Maddie is a very empathetic, non-aggressive, non-assertive writer, and is willing to kind of take the feedback and figure it out, but she's not going to be like, I know everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so joy is not the kind of schoolmaster that you can hop on and, and everything is perfect. Or, um, you can learn, like you can't get on her and learn your changes or like your tempi changes that day. You need to learn the basics first. She's going to require you to work up the training pyramid. And so that's what she's doing with Maddie. And it's been fascinating to watch. That's so cool. I love that. it's really neat and um maddie's getting to do things with joy that i didn't get to do as a young writer like clinically with lyndon gray who is a multiple olympian doing the whole dressage for kids program that's not stuff that i was able to do when i was that her age so it's really cool to see the fruits of my labor being put into the spotlight and then also worked harder on if that makes sense like lyndon gray saying you know, she knows more, you need to ride better (laughs) and kind of 
asking people to step up to the plate, understanding that there's a solid foundation there, but she's not just going to give it away for free. What is the, um, what is the dressage for kids? Because I saw your post about that and that was interesting to me because I've never heard of that before. Yeah, it, it's, it's a fascinating program. I knew about it when I was a young writer and for those listening in the dressage world, you are technically a junior writer until you're 18. You're a young writer until 21, but you can also be a part of like the Grand Prix teams if you're sub 25. It, there's a whole bunch of like little complexities in within that. London Gray is one of the U.S. Olympians um, from, I think, that I, I'm not going to assume when she went to the Olympics, but she went multiple times. And she created a foundation for writers who are either aspirationally wanting to be professionals, young writers that want to be professionals, little kids who just want to know more about dressage, um, that kind of stuff. A lot of the young writers that go and represent the United States at the, uh, the national North American young writer championships have been through that program. So they get to go and they have theory lessons. They have interviews with farriers and veterinarians. They have to do workouts. It's like boot camp. Wow. And it's remarkable. It is, it's such a great program for someone who's wanting to take it really seriously. It's not someone who, it's not for someone who's going to, you know, if you want to just hang out and go to a, a dressage show here and there, that's wonderful. And I encourage you to do that. But if you're wanting to learn and grow yourself and grow through the levels and maybe get your own young horse or you're working with a young horse or you have an upper level horse that you're trying to get to young riders, um, it's fascinating. <laughs> it's really, really neat. So there, you get to have multiple lessons throughout the weekend. You're required to watch, um, much like I participated in the George Williams Clinic, who at the time was... He was the president of the United States Dressage Federation when I applied to be a part of that program. And I got to go for a couple of, for a full weekend and participate with all of the girls who would then go and represent um, Region 9 and Young Riders. And I had this like little scrawny five-year-old and I was like, we know how to do transitions and like yields. <laughs> and it's kind of, it's, it's a really interesting it, it's like a soft introduction into a, like a winter intensive program, something like that. Um, okay. it, it's fascinating. You have to apply to get in. You have to have goals that you communicate. You write thank you letters. Like it's, it's a lot. It's good shit. Excuse my French. That's crazy. That honestly, that's really cool though. I didn't, I didn't even realize until I saw your post, I never heard of that. And it's not something that people who aren't maybe kind of more dressage oriented that really like know about, because why would you? It's not something that's going to really benefit you. I think the, the horsemanship lessons can benefit everyone, of course, and like yeah. the vet net lessons and all of that stuff is great, the physio lessons in particular, but it's really something to kind of help you structure your training as a, as a young writer um, yeah. or as a as a dressage writer generally, because she does do clinics with adults. It's just happens to be more young writer oriented. Okay. That's so cool. So, okay. So when you were talking about joy and kind of like her personality and stuff, can, yeah. can you kind of like, I guess I can't believe I'm asking this question because I couldn't answer this, but is there like certain qualities in each of your horses that you can like pinpoint, I would have like an hour long answer, but feel free to 
I think I brought a pretty concise answer actually, because this is one of those things I think about a lot, having three horses in three different stages of their lives. Um, Posey is my young horse and I love that she's never met an ill hand. She's only ever known, maybe not necessarily, of course, affection, but she's only ever known kindness. And even in situations where she gets as uncomfortable, like a, you know, an ICU visit because she's colicking or whatever it is, or, you know, she had a trailer accident one time that was my fault, which sucked, but she, she never holds it against anyone. And it's so great. <laughs> I love that about her. Um, I joke that she is like, a C student, but class clown. <laughs> and Love she, she's proving to be more like an A student and class clown. Um, okay. But I adore that about her. Apple, my, my pony. Um, I think that he was probably either a teacher or a broodmare in a former life because all he wants to do is take care of others. It's really sweet. Um, he was a therapeutic riding pony for a brief stint, actually not a brief stint, like two or three years. And he knows how to recognize the energy of other people and match it. And he will never, ever overface them because of that. So that's the most fascinating thing about him. And one of the things that I cherish most about him, because you could put like a toddler, you could put a baby on him and he's going to be fine. If I get on him, he's going to go buck me off. I think that's great. That's just who he is. But, you know, I, I put my six foot tall husband on him one time. And I was like, cause he, went, he wanted to go on a trail ride with me and an apple took immaculate care of him. Didn't put a foot out of place. Didn't dip his head too far to tilt my husband off balance. I mean, he knew that he had a, a beginner on his back and he wanted to take care of it. And so I think that that's probably my favorite thing about him. Uh, Joy really is the definition of of like a consensual, respectful relationship. And I love that about her. She requires a lot of her writer, a lot of her writer to kind of earn the things that she knows and the things that she's learning. Um, but when you give her that respect and, and support her through it, because she can actually be quite insecure, she puts on a really brave face, but she's actually quite a nervous horse. Um, so when you can support her and give her the confidence through it, she's like, I got you, you've earned this. Um, and then I also, she's very secretly affectionate, which is, is really sweet. So if you get a little, a little grooming or like mutual grooming or, um, a little snuggle here and there, it really means a lot because she's quite a private internal horse, just naturally she's quite introverted. Um, but I think they all have just wonderful qualities and they, they're not the same. <laughs> at all I love that the the individuality of of everyone's horses is just something that always fascinates me there's never one that's ever going to be anything like someone else yeah and you know that's something that's I breeding joy I kind of expected to get like some version of her in a capacity maybe in the worst or the best ways and instead I got this like freaking clown. <laughs> Joy's very serious. She's a professional. She wants to do her job. And if you get in her way, it's your fault. But I expected this foal to come out with quite serious tendencies or um, maybe a little more focused. 
I don't, I don't know. I, I expected it to be a little bit more like Joy because sometimes I joke she's ironically named. I didn't pick her name. So then Posey came out and she's like this, this wild child of hippie dippiness. And it's very, very sweet. So it's fun to kind of see how different they can be, even if they are genetically related. I love that you describe her as a, as a hippie. That's, I feel like I get that. I get that vibe from just from what I see of her anyway. Well, she was born on earth day. That makes sense. Totally makes sense. That makes Yeah. So she's always, she's the, the calm after the, the tough stuff of being a a young rider with a a tough, complex horse. She's the easy part. (laughs) That's great. Especially for such a young horse. If she's easy, that's a blessing. It is. And of course there are challenges. Young horses are always present weird things that you don't expect, but it's never been anything that's concerning or dangerous or anything like that and I think a lot of that has to do with how many positive interactions she's had since since the beginning she's had a really solid foundation built on humans are good humans are going to be kind humans are only looking out for your best intentions so she innately trusts everyone no matter who they are that's great that's a great quality to have um and to be able to instill that in her so young is awesome because she'll carry that through Hopefully, if I don't mess up. Oh, you won't. <laughs> you won't. You've done great so far, so you'll it'll be great. Well, thank you. Yeah, she's um, she's a super cool little horse. Not little. She's enormous, but she's a she's a really hmm? how tall she is huge. I have no idea because okay, the last time I sticked her, she was somewhere between like sixteen one and sixteen two. Okay. Her sire is 16-1. On a good day, is what I was told. And Joy's only 15-3. Oh. And I have had the opportunity to work with four generations of the bloodlines from Joy's maternal side. So great-grandam, grandam, dam, and Joy. I've had four of them. And they don't throw big babies. They're not big horses. They're like between the 15-3 and 16-1 mark. And then Posey kind of popped her head out and I was like, what's up with that? Why are you so tall? Why are you so big? And she, cause she was about 120 pounds thereabouts when she was, when she was born and required a little bit of assistance to, to greet the world between me and my husband, because she was so broad shouldered and she got kind of stuck. She actually needed That's help. more than me now. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Wait, I put it into perspective. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, more than a whole adult person or, you know. She's a, we're not quite sure how big she'll end up being because even the breeder of the sign was quite stumped. They didn't wow. expect it. So this bloodline, having worked with them for, you know, 20 years or so, they tend to not finish growing physically until they're about six. And that's not including like the, the musculature that they put on because of work or, you know, development. So I'm thinking she'll hopefully finish out about 16.3, but she weighs like close to 1,300 pounds now. Mm. So she's a, she's a big gal. So she's probably about Rian's size. Rian is sitting right now pretty comfortably about 
Um, and you have he, a bowl. Yeah, he's huge. Um, and when I got him, he was about 15 too. And last time I sticked him, he was 16 too. So in a year, he's grown exponentially. Like it's, it's been insane. What's really interesting is that the more corrected that they start to develop their, their muscular like body, sometimes they start to stand up a little bit taller. It's like correcting someone's posture. Somehow they get taller because of that. And that happens a lot with sport horses where they kind of like are a little bit shorter and there's no problem with that. I, I love smaller horses. This cat is wild. Um, but it's surprising because it seems like every day that she develops muscle, she just gets taller and taller and taller and taller. Yeah. So we'll have to figure it out. Give me one more year and I'll be able to give you maybe like a firm estimate. I did do the string test because I thought it would be funny when she was born and it said 16, three and three quarters. Wow. So we'll find out how close that is. And she'll probably be up there. I would assume close to that. Yeah, I've measured her against other horses that are supposed to be 16-1, 16-2, and she towers over them. So it's really neat. <laughs> That's so cool, though, man. I love big horses. Yeah, it's, it's a change because I'm used to riding. So Apple is 13-3. Oh. Itty-bitty. And then Joy is 15-3. And then Posey is not only not petite, but also quite tall. And so I get on and I feel like I'm on a barrel because my feet don't go past my flaps on my saddle. It's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> nice. nice. An, an adjustment. Uh, I love that. Uh, ooh, I think I just hit my mic. Um, I think this is Abby's question. Ooh. I think so. Um, we know you're very busy between um, being an attorney and all of your horses. How do you, how do you balance all of that? Early mornings and a lot of black coffee. Yeah, coffee helps. Coffee's yes, good. It does. Specifically um, black coffee. Spe specifically black coffee. I I tend to only drink black coffee, unfortunately. Whether I mean, it be in a French press or espresso, I'm I'm fine either way. <laughs> yep. You win. You just <laughs> I don't know. That's something I, I grew up with it. So I tend to struggle with putting things in my coffee generally. It's not that slight on anyone who does. Um, I think it's really about finding if you happen to have a partner, whoever that partner may be in your life, making sure that you guys communicate your schedules. And so you can kind of plan in advance about, um, long nights at the barn, early mornings at the barn or lessons, trailering, hauling, that stuff like that. My husband and I actually share a, a calendar. It's an app. And so he travels a lot for his work. And so we just put everything to this calendar. So we know where each other have to go really. Um, but I think it's really about just finding the timelines that work best for you. And then figuring out how to incorporate it. A lot of people have shift work or jobs like that that can be kind of stressful and manipulate your time out, outside of what you want to have control over. So it's important to understand how to prioritize what's important to you, to know when to scale it back. How, you know, if, if the day comes along and you're scheduled for a ride, I am sometimes 6 a.m., but you have to be at work at 9 a.m., 
and you're having a really bad morning, maybe you just don't do that. So it's about learning how to kind of cut yourself slack and learn to, where to, to build up in the other ways. Um, I'm lucky enough now to be able to work remotely completely, which has changed my outlook a ton. Um, but during law school, it was managing horses, riding, training, and studying was, was a really big challenge for me. So um, on top of being a person with ADHD, which is an additional complexity added in. So it really comes down to like how many things you need to have to help you structure your life, because sometimes it's going to be just your phone. Sometimes it's going to be your phone and like a planner. Sometimes it's going to be a phone planner, a calendar on a wall, stuff like that. So I found kind of sanctity and being able to block out my time, knowing I'm going to spend three hours at the barn here, study for three hours, do this, or I'm going to work for four and a half hours or I'm going to take a long lunch. I'm going to go to the barn and then I'm going to work a little late. It's just really learning about how you, how your mental health can be balanced within those types of unfortunate kind of corporate structures, you know, those corporate developments that make us work such weird hours. So. How do you cut your, or I don't want to say cut your time. Like, how do you, leave the barn on time because I have a hard time making that happen always my, my husband would tell you I don't <laughs> however I think I do um I think of course if there's emergencies or things that happen whatever it is but you just budget in time in anticipation of it running along whether that's because you have okay so you have a lesson at, at three o'clock so you know you need 30 minutes to get tacked up or whatever it is, tacked up and warmed up. Add in an extra 15 or 20 minutes because <laughs> you're gonna wanna hang out. You're gonna wanna talk to people if you want to at the barn. You're gonna find something to hang out with your horse about. You know, they're gonna, you're gonna wanna let them graze or whatever it is. Um, and, and then budget additional time after your riding as well. You know, just kind of put it in there. So pad almost your time at the barn. So then you can say, Hey, I'm going to go to the barn at, at two o'clock. I should be back by like six or seven. In reality, you might be back sooner. And no one will know the difference. <laughs> That's smart. It helps a little bit. It really does. Um, but it can be tough because things do just pop up. So hopefully you have a a job or a partner or a, you know, a roommate who is understanding of that. Uh, sometimes things will just get in the way of your time and you have to learn how to adjust. And if that means you need an early morning or a late night, because you have to catch up on other stuff, it is what it is, but you just have to do whatever's best for your mental health that day. And sometimes that's cutting barn time short, to be honest. Mm. Yeah. I'm really bad about that. I'll sometimes I have to like be like you, you you do not have to get everything done like right. it's okay. like groom them and, and and be done like that that can be enough for today I'm so we, bad about that. we fed some treats we picked some feet everything's fine I'm gonna go home <laughs> exactly exactly right. um so obviously you've done a lot in the industry as far as the dressage now you have someone leasing out joy is there a specific quality that, you know, you think is important to have specifically in the dressage realm of, of the industry? 
I think it's actually one that goes for the horse industry generally. One of my mentors when I was growing up, I, I was really lucky to have a, a proper mentor when I was a teenager. Um, meaning I would drive to another city to go clean his stalls and he would occasionally let me ride his horses and I would get lectures in between. But he told me one day, and it, this is, um, it's not accurate exactly as to what he said because he can't remember the quote directly, but it was approximately something like, um, if you ever feel like you have learned everything there is to know in this industry, quit. Mm. there's no don't be a part of it any longer because you won't you won't grow you won't participate you will think you're kind of the the top of the crop the the wheat and the chaff and all of that stuff um but I think this idea that we are constantly learning about about horses brains about their bodies about training methods about ourselves as human beings, as ourselves as riders, I think that it's really important that we keep an open mind and be willing to take away something positive or negative from everyone that we meet in the industry, whatever that ends up being. Hopefully you take away a lot more positives than you do negatives, but it doesn't mean that you can't learn something from someone because it doesn't align with your own personal riding compass, for lack of a better term. Mm. Um, I think that that's really important is just keeping you have to be a, like a, a constant student really. And sometimes that's tough for people because people like to get static um, in their own education. So they don't understand why they have to keep learning a sport, quote unquote, but we're working with this incredible live animal that has its own, like a sentient being that has its own feelings and emotions and, and physical ailments and imperfections and we have to kind of learn to work with that and if we're not willing to continue learning then why are we even doing it so if you're willing to wake up early and stay a little late and learn and study of your own volition not just go to your lesson every week your single lesson every week and not try and investigate outside of it then I think that that shows a lot of promise because it shows that you, you have a deep appreciation and care for what we do here and what we do with our horses, whether you're a dressage rider or not. So I think it kind of is an industry wide thing as a, just a horse person. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think, yeah, it's spot on. I, I don't think there's ever a time where like, I haven't learn something even if I'm not riding they are just right it's mind-blowing well and, and sometimes the best thing that you can learn is that that doesn't fit with my my values or my ethics sometimes yeah. that's that's just not what you <laughs> what you take away from conversations and that's okay there's nothing wrong with taking away something from a clinician or from a barn owner or a trainer or whatever and just saying that doesn't sit right with me because that's yeah. alone rather than calling it like the static kind of non-fluctuating thing. And, and you can still benefit from that. I think a lot of it actually. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I think it's important to be able to question yes. things, even if they come from somebody that, that you trust, it's important to be able to question it and look into it yourself and get your own your own answers no matter who it comes from 
I think that that, I completely agree. And you and I have actually have talked about this kind of offline a bit where people don't feel like they're in a position. There's this whole power dynamic when we're in horses, right? Where there's like a barn owner or a trainer and we're just the owner and we have the horse. So we don't know anything. We need to learn everything. And people take advantage of that or just don't give a shit. Excuse my French. Um, And learning to stand up for yourself, but more importantly, learning to stand up for your horse is one of the toughest lessons you have to learn. And it really, really sucks. It really sucks because you feel like you're in a position where you are lacking the power in, in the relationship, whether it's an educational relationship or not. And you're having to say, mm, that's not right. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite stories is I was working with a, 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 well, a relatively well-known clinician in our area. <laughs> and um, Joy is reactive. She's what would be characterized as a hot, sensitive horse. And it's one of the things I love about her is she makes whatever she's feeling known. And I told this person, if you come at her with a whip, because we were doing a, a clinic specifically focusing on the idea of working half steps. So off and passage foundational steps, right? So some of that requires creating an energy box where the horse kind of learns to, to move within the space. It doesn't require pulleys or chains or double bridles or any of that crap. It's just kind of teaching them to contain their energy a little bit more. And there are outdated ways to teach it to be perfectly fair. So I told this clinician, don't come at her with a long whip. Don't do it. And he did it anyway. Hmm. She bit him. And he got real (laughs) mad. Oh. And I was like, but I told you, because I know this horse better than you do, not to do that. And it's really tough to in those situations with people watching or um peers or professionals watching to be able to say no absolutely not you don't get to do that I'm not comfortable with that um I had to do that as a young rider someone wanted me to put on draw reins on a horse I was riding that I knew didn't need draw reins but I was only 15 or 16 and it was a really defining moment of being a young rider because I said no I don't think that's necessary I think I need to work harder Mm. and he respected my opinion this was my mentor at the time and it worked out really well for us but it was a really defining moment of having to kind of find my own gumption and say that does not fit within my within my scheme of ethics and morals I won't I won't proceed there but a lot of people just kind of fall prey to either professional names or peer pressure to be honest I mean adults are just as susceptible as teenagers and preteens you know we're all people so we just have to try and stand up for ourselves and our horses as much as possible whatever that looks like and sometimes it's not easy nor is it pretty yeah I I think that's probably the hardest thing that I've experienced in the industry was like yeah having to like put my foot down and be like I I don't think this is okay um yeah absolutely and you know like I mean looking back now, I'm, I'm very grateful and I'm very happy with where I am now. And I don't think I could say that before, but it, I don't want to say it cost me because 
I think losing the people was like the best thing that could have happened to me, but it did cost something. You know what I mean? Like I went from having a barn and I went from having friends who were 15 minutes down the road to, you know, not having that, but, um, like you said, like no one else is going to stick out for my horse. So, right. And it, all those things. It's one of those things too, or if you, like, if you take the horse out of the equation and you make it a person, right. Let's say it's a, you know, a sibling or a a friend or whatever, rather than your, your riding partner. And people started treating that person that way. And if you reacted the same way that you would by standing up for them and the people around you reacted negatively, are those your people? No, not at all. And there you go. It sucks. It doesn't mean it's easy. But it, it really helps weed out the kind of fair weather friends and like the, um, the clicky friends from everything mm. else. Um, and it brings you to people who understand your sensitivity and your emotional connection and your hard work and your boundaries. Yeah. Rather than just people who are yes men. Yeah. It's good to have uh, no men around. I, well, I mean, that sounds worse than it is that too um but you know you need people on your side who will tell you when you're when you're wrong and when, when, you you're, when you're wrong and also when they don't understand why you're making certain decisions and I hear that that's a really big thing I'm lucky enough to have friendships that have lasted the entirety of my writing career a couple of them but some of my friendships have my most beneficial friendships have actually been people who stepped away from the writing community. My, my best friend is an attorney as well. It's a, long, a really long story, but like we did not meet because of writing. We met in DC, but she's from Michigan and I'm from Texas. It's a, there's a whole thing there, but she's able to kind of, without knowing the people that I'm around, identify why I make decisions and know why they align with who I am as a writer and a person. So it, it can bring you to people who are closer to that kind of stuff. It's just, it's tough because the, the horsey community is so clicky and groupy. And especially if you live in a, in a place like Florida or Georgia or Texas, everyone knows everyone and everything about everyone. So it's just, it's tough. It can, it can be really hard, but at the end of the day, the only person that you're going to have to answer to is yourself, which sucks. And then your horse which also sucks. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I also think um, it's important to recognize that the people around you don't need to understand why you're making the decisions you're making too. Um, Exactly. What they should do is ideally, right? if they don't understand it, that doesn't mean they don't support you because they know your compass. They know why you would make certain decisions for certain reasons. Just because they don't understand the circumstances doesn't really mean anything. Like I support my girlfriend's um, dating decisions, whether or not I meet the guy or I oppose them, right? Like you don't have to be in the minutia of that type of stuff in order to have a a view on how a person interacts with that situation. You can just support them or say, Hey, I think you messed up. 
why are you making that choice? So it, it kind of goes both ways. I mean, it's both horsey and, you know, and personality wise. Yeah, I think there's also something to be said about like being willing to ask, but mm-hmm. like, you know, like, I don't know, I guess there's been plenty of times where I wish someone would have just asked like, hey, why, instead of just assuming to know my intention and then coming to the wrong conclusion. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Totally. I, I preach that to the choir, my man. <laughs> to hit louder for the people in the back. <laughs> yeah, it's. But that's the thing I think that's built into a certain generation of horse people. And I hope that we're moving away from it. I hope so. Where people like just, we are, I, think. I, I think so too. I have really positive feelings from this younger generation that are younger than all of us. Not just me. Um, You're not old. Yeah. feel old sometimes. Um, you're not as ancient as you think. <laughs> thank you. Okay. So let's, let's go with like the, let's go with like the 12 to 18 year old group. I think they are feeling the, the fallout that my generation in particular dealt with kind of with the safe sport stuff. Mm. Right. Which was a really big deal and should continue to be a big deal. And they're also feeling the fallout of y'all's generation with the people they interact with and the way that welfare becomes a part of that. I think they're going to be better for it in so many ways. And I hope that they are, or they're at least able to have those tough conversations that weren't ever welcome in the spaces that we were at that time. Yeah, that's a really good point. I feel like there's, um, I don't know, even just from like, I mean, I've been riding for 18 years and oh my gosh, that's amazing. Your riding career is a, like a legal adult now. I, I know that's crazy, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I remember when I started, it was very like closed off information wise. Like there wasn't like a free form sharing of information. Everyone was very, not at all with what they knew. Um, and then, you know, I, I went through the situation where it was me figuring out on my own, like, what do I do? And, and this, um, and then, you know, I, I've met really amazing people through that who did come alongside me eventually and like, Hey, like, here's what I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so forever grateful for that. And I see that happening like more and more of a free, I don't know, like a free flow of people just being like, this is what worked for me. It may or may not work for you, but this is what worked. Um, Open-mindedness. Yeah. Um, and not everything is going to work for every horse. What works for Rian probably isn't going to work for someone else's horse, but it's just what works for him. Right. Um, and I don't know, I think it's really encouraging to see that open-mindedness, but also the, the willingness to kind of come alongside people and be like, Hey, if you need something, let me know. You know, that actually piggybacks off of a conversation I had a couple of weekends ago. So 
I don't know, growing up what in, in the writing industry, specifically focusing on dressage, was, even though I was not an affluent young teenager who was had like FEI goals, I'm going to win gold medals. Woo! Even with that, there's like certain types of predatory behavior that come from not only like the idea of trainers and, and I guess maybe the more traditionally masculine trainers, right? But there, there are things that happen between trainers and students, no matter the gender, that are damaging to young people. Mm. And I think leave a lot of lasting trauma. Sometimes that's fear of riding, which is unfortunate, but God, why is a trainer? I have experienced that. Yeah, for sure. One of my very close friends has similar stuff that she's kind of working through, but at the same time, there's also this, this whole kind of like emotional manipulation that comes with it because it's a power struggle, like I said earlier. And I was talking to a friend of mine and we were talking about a younger friend of ours. She happens to be older than I am, or my friend does. And we were talking about kind of who we needed to be for our experiences to not be repeated, I guess, if that makes any sense. And how we were trying to structure our interactions with young people and with young writers generally so that that cycle could kind of be broken in an, whether it be because it's abusive, whether it's because it's sexualized, which happens a lot. Yeah, with horse, horse girls specifically. Right. Specifically. um, We've all kind of been through that in some ways. I even had, I've had a trainer in the past who um, kind of used that as a, um, way to instruct her students to ride better which is oh, really I'm familiar and horrible to yeah. think about but I mean we've all I think we've all been there um I, I 100% agree especially dealing in dressage is traditionally kind of male dominated or at least it was when I was growing up um which funny is that women's pelvises are actually better. Like the differences between a man and a woman's pelvis for riding makes the riding different. And so it's, it's ideal, but either way, that doesn't really matter is that I had this conversation with a friend of mine where we both said, we're trying not to reciprocate the things that happen to us. And through our actions, maybe we can make this better for them specifically by trying to be the person for this young person that we needed at that age without the like the sexualization without the emotional abuse without the trauma that kind of becomes ingrained in that and it's it's so strange how just little things like the changes in your vernacular or the way that you don't stress about certain things can make those changes it's it, it like it's the littlest things that become really big and make a, a really big impact on the next generation and so both of us are kind of hoping that maybe we've made a positive impact rather than a negative one yeah no I love that I definitely I I don't know I I just there were so many like really great people who I, I look up to still. Um, and then there were people that obviously like I really looked up to and then, you know, life happens, but, um, 
it's interesting that like the tidbits that you take and you just kind of know that this is what I'm not going to do and this is what I am going to do and hopefully I don't inflict the same damage on someone else on someone else or a horse yeah exactly exactly I mean there's times I still look back and I'm like I would I I mean I'll I'll cringe like I we all do you're not alone and, and you do and you you just go with what you know at the time and you do your best. And I'm sure next year I'll look back and be like, what were you doing? Um, I jokingly we call just it talked first about child syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I get that with Gizmo a lot. I think the first child syndrome thing. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of things I did in the beginning. I think looking back that I would have done differently. The first six weeks that I had him I didn't have a trainer and I bought him without a trainer as well I just kind of went like and I was like I I wasn't even trying to buy a horse anyways and then when I was trying to buy a horse it was not the kind of horse that Gizmo was and then um, I got him and actually when he got off of the trailer he spooked really badly and almost ran me over and I just thought to myself oh my god these people just brought this horse here after I made them wait a month because I didn't have the money and now he's here and he's running me over and I'm terrified and what am I gonna do um and then I didn't have anybody for a month you know yeah I I feel similar there was a, a a big portion of my relationship with Joy when she was first born where something bad happened with my trainer's husband and I don't think it's appropriate to talk about here necessarily yeah something something legally went very poorly and it involved one of the girls that I rode with oh gosh so things joy was born kind of right after this was happening and my trainer was was reckoning with the result of of what had happened and understandably was was really struggling like i think any of us would i mean like i don't want kids but they had a kid and they had businesses and all of this and all of this stuff had happened and it was you know, and, and we're 14 and you're a 14 year old girl and you're dealing with all of this kind of secondary trauma from people that you ride with and, and then also your trainer. So for a long period of time, I was kind of left alone with joy. I don't have any instruction and this is like a newborn foal and a 14 year old girl, you know, so you're, you're trying to do your best, but you're going to make mistakes. And while I'm so grateful for the learning opportunities that happened because of that, because I was by myself and I kind of had to problem solve things and go on YouTube or go on Google and, and kind of like figure some stuff out. I, I certainly wouldn't wish that upon anyone else. And it, it can be tough to kind of look back at your younger self and say, it's okay. You just like Kenzie said, 
you did the best with what you knew at the time and, and the resources you had at the time, you know, now at 28, my resources are different. My education is different. So Posey had a different upbringing than Joy did. <laughs> um, but it doesn't mean that you can't, I don't know, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to reckon with the past sometimes and to give yourself some grace for the mistakes that you have made because of the circumstances. And you can't, um, you can't undo it, but you can, you can grow from it and you can learn from it. And I think Mm -hmm. adversity like that is um, good for us. And I don't want to say it's good for the horses, but I think, and you know, I'm not like a professional in any sense, but I think um, especially having the situation with Gizmo where he was underfed for oh my um, gosh about yeah. a month before I was able to get him out and that's where all of his behavioral stuff started understandably uh, I forget where I was going with it oh gotcha um <laughs> to to go through something like that and then come out on the other side um, to what we have now it, it makes it so much stronger and I don't know yeah if they interpret it the same way we do. Um, But I'd like to think it's something, something similar, maybe, maybe makes them trust us a little bit more to go through a little bit of hardship. I agree. I think that they realize the people who are invested in them for better or for worse. (laughs) Yeah. I, I had a situation pretty similar to what Abby was just talking about and oh, I'm so mine got ugly. you know at the end of the day you learn and you grow and like I said I I don't regret it because I no one else was going to stand up for my horse and even though Rian and Jess didn't go through that um and I'm so glad that they didn't you know they have their own set of issues that people inflicted on them um but they got the better version of me on the other side of that situation. So not that like, I love that we went through that. Um, Specifically the horse that I had at the time went through that, but I think both of us kind of grew from that. And now he's, you know, doing things that he could have never done with me and it it works really well, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, looking back like I don't know that I would necessarily change it now like I feel like it it really kind of brought me to the point where I am now um I was just like a better caretaker for Rian and Jess so yeah you're the uh you're the gatekeeper you yeah know, for, the, for their care and for their well-being and unfortunately to do that well you have to make mistakes and yeah. the only thing that you can do is be better than you were the day before and that's one of those things that I've really had to reckon with because my mental health is so tied into my horses that all I can do is, is apologize or do better the next day, you know, and, and a lot of people don't really, I, I don't think either have that type of emotional connection, like all of us are talking about with our horses or, um, or they just don't care enough or not emotionally intelligent enough to recognize that type of stuff. So it can be really hard living in a world, especially like Instagram where Mm. everything is really cookie cutter 
And everyone's like, no, I'm doing the best all the time. No, you're not. Yeah. Nobody's doing the best all the time. No, you're, yeah, exactly. No, you're messing up. You're making mistakes and that's okay. And I understand why you don't want to share that publicly, but just don't lie to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Mistakes happen every day. Every time we ride or do something with the horses, you always mess up. It's never perfect. Even if it's for a second. No, you always mess up something. You will always learn. You know, there's, there's this whole idea of like, you either win or you lose, but it's really, you win or you, you learn something. Hopefully you're Uh, learning if you're winning too, you know? I love that. Love that saying. Um, Yeah. It's one of my favorites too. You win or you learn. Um, Yeah. It's a good one. Because there's no, there's no loss in learning something because you're, you're getting something from. What's really interesting is that I've had this opportunity to, as I, I least joy out to this young writer, um, she was previously an eventer hmm. and had not been appropriately mounted. She had never owned her own horse and her trainer is very well known in our area. And I don't necessarily agree on a lot of things with her trainer, um, but her trainer and I are on good terms. And so we're warming up for this first rated dressage show and it's first level, right? So first levels, if you can like stay on the horse and do some pretty basic like lateral movements and you have this idea of a connection like with the bridle and stuff like that, you're going to be fine. And this young rider is, she is smarter than all of us combined. And um, smarter than all of us combined and also very academically minded and very goal oriented. So I work with her exclusively unless she's at a, a clinic or anything like that, because she rides another young horse who she works with, with her young horse's owner. So, you know, I know what Joy's like in a, in a show setting. And so it was really interesting to go in and say, you need to make mistakes. You need to kind of grow from this. And she, she gained some confidence and then she did, you know, she made these mistakes on the Sunday of the show where she had had all of the, she gotten the scores necessary that she needed to, that was not ever going to be an issue. But I said, go in there and take some chances, go in there and make some mistakes. And that's going to be perfectly fine. That's part of this growing. That's part of this development. Um, and she did, and she made some mistakes and she still scored really well. But it's part of that idea of people get so worried and wrapped up in their horse's identity and with their identity that they don't want to make any mistakes. But I think you kind of have to make mistakes to grow, Mm. unfortunately, even if they suck. You know, I, I made a mistake earlier today. We're always learning. We're always growing. It's just one of those things. Um, and if you're not ready for a lifelong education, then maybe this isn't your sport. Yeah. Or hobby or yeah. passion. I can't, I mean, there's, I make a mistake. I think every time I go out with them and like Rian is really, really good about being very gentle with me. He's oh. kind of like, he's very motherly for a gelding um geldings tend to be that's my that's my soapbox for this evening 
Yeah, he's he's just like very much. Um, I think if anyone else met him, they pro- like everyone hears me like gush about him and they're like, oh, I want to meet him. And I'm like, you probably don't because he's going to ignore you. Um, and he's probably not going to want to interact with you because he's just that way. Like, he's just very much like my little man. Oh, um, he's I love him to death. Um, but he's very much like dismissive of everyone yeah. else. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but he's very, like, very gentle with me as far as like me making mistakes and stuff. Whereas Jess is a lot more like outgoing and like social butterfly, and she thinks everyone is there for her. Um, but she's very quick, like she doesn't put up with half of what Rian will put up with. So she's very quick at being like, mm, no, like absolutely not. Um, which I'm super grateful for. I honestly could not have two better teachers, but she keeps me very humble. <laughs> like that's what you, you know need. What I mean? it's, yeah. It's, it's like that too. <laughs> keeps keeps you humble for sure. Yeah. I feel like Rian, he's sometimes too good to me. Um, and Jess is that great equalizer, I guess. There's something different between that, those types of interactions, because I think that horses require different parts of you, you know, and one of the the biggest things I had to learn kind of becoming an adult was like, there are days where I cannot be the person my horse needs. And that was a tough reckoning. Um, but it's really interesting the things that they require from you because of their own needs and their own personalities, even on the ground. Like you don't have to be in the saddle to kind of recognize that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's just fascinating. Your, your mare sounds a lot like joy <laughs> in that sense where she's just like, no, oh, you're dumb. Yeah. You're dumb. Like her young writer likes to joke that, yeah. um, a lot of the time it feels like she is joy is the big sister that's been forced to play with the infant um, like writer funny actually and then she made she made a joke when we were at this past show where she was like well it's a little bit more like a professor and a student now (laughs) it just made me cackle because I totally understand (laughs) she knows more than all of us combined amazing yeah, she's she's super neat. I I, I get her back for a couple to... of months this summer, so I'm I'm really looking forward to having her back. So that'll be so that'll be fun. Awesome. I know you've probably missed her her being her being away. Um, yeah, get to see her, but it's it, it's weird. You don't really think about it too much until they're they're gone necessarily. I was I did the day to day care for most of my horses for most of their lives, and so all of a sudden 12 years later I don't have one of them <laughs> and that's and that's really weird for me especially because it was my like my my firstborn quote-unquote um so I'm really looking forward to to having her back and to just hanging out with her like if anything just like let's go for a little trail ride my girl let's go see some weird crap let's go do it I <laughs> <laughs> love that I know um Bailey too you did you did or you do the equi search is that right 
Yes. Um, so I'm a joy as well. So I'm an active volunteer and I've paid my dues, but I have not participated yet. Um, one of my like outside horsey kind of passions is missing people, missing and endangered people. And I, when we were in comfort, um, kind of, which is kind of in the hill country, when we had all the horses on the property, I had signed up to participate if they needed an actual horse search, you know, with the grid and nothing, there were plenty of searches that happened, but they were not within like an eight hour drive because Texas is just so big. Um, however, still a member of the organization hoping to at least participate on foot, if not with a horse, um, because I think it's a, it's a really important part of the privilege of having access to animals like this. Um, missing and endangered people are just, a kind of a passion project of mine. I think as a legal professional and as a just a human in general, I find it really compelling. So I want to participate as much as I can. And I happen to have this privilege of having horses and we get to do things like that. So I encourage people to reach out to their local like sheriff's office or whatever they have. If you have a truck or a trailer or an ATV or, or a horse, then just volunteer your time because that's what they really need is people to just go and do the, the boots on the ground type of work. But I love it. The I wish it didn't have to exist, but that's just not feasible. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to participating a little bit more this year. That's, I mean, it's horrifically unfortunate and sad that that even exists, but that's a really cool way to kind of pay it forward. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. The guy who founded the EquiSearch project in Texas, um, unfortunately had his child go missing and then was was discovered at a different point and was not alive um so he founded this to kind of prevent that for other people and if you ever hear of any true crime case in texas the equity search people have been involved so mm. the goal is to be more involved with that um it, with the privilege of having a legal education and also having horses my my goal is to at some point become a liaison between the families of missing people and the police departments or the, the agencies that they are working with. Um, it was really important in a couple of cases in California, uh, really big cases, probably national news cases. And I think that that's really important for mm -hmm. families and for, for offices. So they don't, I don't know, during those types of situations, people tend to butt heads. And I get why. So maybe an impartial third party can be really helpful, especially if they know both sides of the, of the situation. Ideally, that's kind of where that goes along with some, some more volunteer work. That's really cool. I mean, not, I don't No, It's, it, I understand. you're, you're good. You're good. Don't worry. It's, it's not insensitive to say that it's, that it's cool. I mean, it's unfortunate that the thing happens. Yeah, but hopefully there are people that Definitely can be involved. Interesting. Yeah, and hopefully there are people that can be involved and benefit both parties. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good way to do it because horses can. And and I hate to. Um, I hate to say um, this particular thing, but horses can get to to where sometimes we can't. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, I mean, it can come in handy. And like you said, it's to help the families. Um, and, you know, um, God willing or whoever, whatever you, you believe in, some, some good comes out of it. And um, they don't always have to have like a, a sad ending. Um, no, of course not. A really good way to, to, get in, to get into that, to help those people. Um, either get closure or um, find find whatever it is or whoever it is that they're that they're looking for in, in one piece and bring them home. Well, and the whole idea of being able to rule out areas too is really important to those types of investigations. So Texas in particular being so big and rural and weird in the various landscapes that we have here, a lot of people can't kind of trapeze it on their own two feet you need an atv you need a truck you need people you need horses you need mules like you need stuff to get through this kind of of environment and so the idea of being able to pay it forward with not only these horses that i've devoted my life to but the ability to maybe give some comfort at the very least saying we can't find anything here and ruling out this area and so we can move to something else I, I feel like that's that's really beneficial but that's like a whole other part of who I am and I haven't quite figured out how to be that person yet I'm just I'm working on like on the ground to try and figure out what that part of my life looks like because I think it's really important I think it's definitely a testament also to what you've done with Joy I know you've had her since she was young and you were young and um you probably went through your difficulties with that, I'm sure. Um, so it's, it's great that you can you can do something like that with her. I know how I would feel if that was something I could do with like Gizmo, for example. Um, and it's it's an it's yeah. You should be. I'm sure you are, but you should be very proud of that. It's an incredible. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. It's one of my one of my passion things when it comes to dressage horses is not raising hothouse flowers. Mm, like, yes. we, need, we need well-rounded dressage horses. It's kind of my thing. And dressage is meant to be for the cavalry. Dressage yes. is not meant to be done in indoor arena in perfect conditions all the time. So I, I, I've so very much enjoyed <laughs> hanging out with Joy and teaching her, or at least giving her the confidence because she doesn't really need to be taught to go and like, let's go on an adventure let's yeah let's go do some weird stuff and so we would go and we would hike mountains or you know go on a really rough property and then we got chased by a bobcat we would go and kind of pin cattle like there's all of this stuff that is so important to a horse's well-being and to being a well-rounded rider that you can bring into your discipline if you so choose and uh, if- we were just talking about that Oh yeah, really? Yeah, Literally. well, I ran into a panther the other day, Tuesday. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, well. yeah, yeah. It was great. It was. Um, I said it was. It was my first trail ride out alone, and um, I said I went on a safari because you I did. got everything. We got chased by a loose dog. We saw some donkeys that were really scary. It was Remy. Luckily, um, Gizmo is very athletic and likes to do his um. Acrobatic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, that nobody in the world could 
sit. Doesn't matter if you were super glued to the saddle, you'd be halfway to Texas. Um, yeah. Which for me is a long way because I'm in Florida. So you can imagine. Um, That's a long time in the stratosphere, but I believe yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so luckily it was Rami, but we had the, the loose dog who looked like a wolf. And then we had the donkeys with their weird noises and then the panther. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to go as far as I wanted to go today. I'll just go yeah. home. <laughs> I've had, I've had enough excitement for today. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that a lot of people bubble wrap their horses to the, almost to the detriment of their mm-hmm. animals yep. experience. Um, less is more I always say this less is more with horses let them be you know yeah I I completely agree and while I'm a person that uses bell boots and and splint boots and stuff like that even though my horses don't have interference because I am concerned about just in case what happens I they have to be able to be animals at some point and we have to be able to facilitate that in a safe way whatever that looks like for them um and and that means that like I didn't want my horses to be, I used to ride down roads, like active roads to get to the places that I needed to be to go in school dressage and then ride back. Wow. So we would have to, I couldn't like, do that. <laughs> I wouldn't do it now. Now that my brain hemispheres have fused, I was a teenager. So it's okay. You know, that makes you're a fearless more then. Yeah. Um, Invincible. But, yeah. Oh my gosh. But I would go and we would do these wild things and, and it made for such a, an incredibly well-rounded horse because, you know, I, Joy hadn't been to a horse show in five years when she went out with her young rider a couple of weekends ago and she just settled. There was no issue there. She ate, she drank, she slept. All of those things that people tend to worry about their horses. She wasn't worried about the noise. She wasn't worried about the atmosphere you know, she got plenty of hand walks, of course, because she's pastured 24 seven, but it was such a fascinating juxtaposition between her reactions to the situation, despite being a very sensitive, very hot horse. And some of the other people who were in like the warm-up arenas, that was pretty clear that their horses live like really manicured lifestyles. And I, there's nothing wrong with that. If you can afford it. Okay, great. I don't want horses like that. I want horses that have seen weird crap and know that like if it, and this is not a joke because this actually happened to me, that if there are cats behind the letter C in your dressage arena at a show who are having a consensual encounter, but it's still quite loud wow you need to be able to work through that (laughs) that's different for sure I have not encountered that only one panther I only had one no the uh feral cats that are a local rated facility um tend to really like see is like their their hot spot so you need to have horses who are comfortable with like cattle and weird truck noises and strange facilities and ground and stuff like that and the only way you can do that is by building their confidence outside of the arena like Mm -hmm. and it's just I think it's so important to building this kind of idea of a well-rounded horse like western horses by trade are well-rounded 
And that yeah. is not something that transfers to dressage, show jumping. It probably transfers to eventing. But to a majority of the English disciplines, I think it's just something that is not as considered because they Absolutely. are they're all bubble wrapped and and I get it. They're valuable, but they have to be horses. That was transitional for me with the Western stuff. Um, yeah. I was applied outside of the arena a lot where I am now. It took me a long time to get there, but um, it's done a lot of good. I have a lot more confidence. That's wonderful. Um, so I agree with that because coming from English background, and I'm sure Kenzie and Bailey from both agree, there's not a whole lot of that. Um, it's very structured. In certain circumstances, yes. And in certain programs, absolutely. If you are lucky enough to be able to develop your own program, it yeah. really does help right. to be able to just kind of incorporate weird crap. Like whatever, whatever you, whatever you want for the day, right? If you want yeah. to do something, we, we have tarps laying around all over here. Love I a use tarp. Them sometimes. Yeah, they're great. Um, I lunge over them sometimes. I'll put them down and lunge over them and it's great to do to be able to do different stuff outside of riding in the traditional sense well and, and, people and, and on top of that it gives you an idea of your horse's capacity your yes. like their mental capacity one of the things that we get to learn as we get older is we learn like when we're overstimulated when we are in a place where maybe doing certain type of work is not beneficial to us why don't we apply that to horses? You know, they're they're the same thing. They're different personalities. They have different experiences. They have different thresholds. So being able to incorporate that type of work, even into like a pure dressage horse's life gives the, gives you a better idea of who they are, what this idea of kind of trigger stacking is, how can you make it positive rather than 13 rabbits? Yes, exactly. So this idea of, of knowing when you feel their boundary and how do you de-escalate that type of stuff or how do you come down from that right or how do you not pick your battle because I don't like the term battle but like how do you pick your your focus point for the day if that's the stuff that's going on um or even things like there's going to be a lot of stuff out of your control how can you build your horse's confidence in you yeah a lot of the time you know, like shows are weird, especially dressage shows. Holy crap. Yeah. Shows are weird. <laughs> so how can you as a person develop their confidence in you and learn and help them learn to lean on you when they're anxious and they're trigger stacked, knowing that you will be their safe harbor for lack of a better term. And that was one of those things that I, I learned with joy the most and benefited me the most and helped me kind of figure out how I wanted to proceed with my writing career. I'm sure a lot we of- We were just um, talking about- Good. Sorry, Kenzie. It, oh, no, I was just going to say- no, good. Um, I was just going to say, we, we were literally just talking about the value of a well-rounded horse last night with- really yeah yeah so we um we recorded last night our um off the track thoroughbred episode awesome um and we were just talking about you know like a lot of the stereotypes and stuff like that and obviously they don't really I, I would say 
from the conversation last night, from knowing Abby and Gizmo. Um, I don't really think a lot of those translate to our thoroughbreds. Sure. Um, but just the value of having two really well-rounded ex-racers who, you know, could very well be predispositioned to be hot if they so chose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Oof, or yeah. impacted <laughs> by their like overwhelmed by their environment and how they both just have like a really good head on their shoulders and they process information well and I really think it comes down to the fact that one they're allowed to just be horses mm-hmm. um and they had that opportunity to kind of make up for what they lacked when they were babies and being started and stuff like that sure. um but you just like the environment and the way we ride and where we ride and like just what they've been exposed to has really kind of, I guess, formulated two really well rounded, safe horses and like good citizens. You know what I mean? Like, absolutely. And by that you're preserving their future. Yeah, right? exactly. Like you're creating solid citizens in this world that in the worst of circumstances, and I cannot stress that enough, the worst of circumstances might be able to save their lives at some point. Right you know, yeah. and that's always been my issue down here in Texas. We are so close to Mexico that we have a lot mm-hmm. of kill pens, much like California, much like the kind of Northeast States that are so close to Canada. And so you need to be really careful about what you teach your horses just in the instance that something is to happen because the, the more well-rounded they are and the more educated they are in the ways of the world the less likely they are to unfortunately have some negative experience like that kind of take advantage of them. That's not to say that people aren't involved in those things and are not guilty for it. But like, I, I don't want to, when I, when Posey was born, I was like, you're going to be my all round horse. You, I hope you want to be a dressage horse. You were bred to be a dressage horse. You need to know how to go in the water. You need to be comfortable with livestock. You need to be comfortable traveling to weird places. You need to know that I'm little and you're big and we're going to do all this cool shit together. So just just follow my lead. Everything's going to be cool. And I I heard the the whole thing about hothouse flowers, right? Where it's like orchids because they have to be managed in a really specific type of humidity and heat and light and all that stuff and I feel like a lot of dressage horses are like that to their detriment and so I ride in thunderstorms which is not fun for anyone apart from joy loves it um (laughs) when there's like cats or dogs in the middle of the arena or armadillos it's more common in Texas um we need to be able to go out on a track we need to be able to go jump some stuff if we want to um you can, my, my big thing is you can always look as long as we're moving forward. And I, that's never, I don't think punishing is a, is a thing in horses, but that's never like a quote unquote punishable offenses. Absolutely. Take a look. You're a prey animal, Mm -hmm. but just come back to me. Know that I'll take care of you. I'm never going to put you in a situation where you're going to be unsafe. And I think a lot of people can really benefit from that idea of stepping outside their comfort zone to enlarge their horse's comfort zones not everything's going to be great all the yeah. time it's a really i had um a dressage trainer who told me 
for a while, like during like whatever warm up we were doing, it's okay for them to be a tourist. I kind of yeah. like that. I like love that. that too. One of the, I made a joke to Maddie's young writers. Uh, if you find yourself a tourist in the city you were born, it's time to go. And it's like a death cab for cutie line. But that means that at some point, you have to reposition the energy. You need to find a capacity to offset that energy, whatever it be, nervous, anxious, whatever that, whatever it may be. You need to be able to kind of find a way to release it in a safe and productive manner rather than to like putting a horse on a lunge line and letting them go crazy for 45 minutes. Like Joya was always lateral work. Okay, so you're worried about this. Let's, let's just do some leg yielding, no pressure, shoulder in, haunches in, half pass, whatever. Um, Posey's turning out to be the same way where she just kind of needs that, she needs to find the release valve for the pressure. But they're allowed to take a look. Of course, I would want to know my surroundings too. They're not robots. Right. We are predators, right? Like look at where our eyes are positioned and we are riding prey animals the best we can do is at least set them up for success. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. We do that to begin with. I think of that all the time. Who was the first crazy person who decided I'm going to get on this animal and ride it around? Um, I wonder why I do it sometimes, actually. But yeah, think about that all the time. Because it, 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 it clashes, right? Like you said, we're predators. They're prey animals. It just, like, doesn't make any sense so whose idea was that <laughs> I think yeah we always magic though of horses like you know what I'm saying like I don't know if you're I know Abby knows who she is now um but um Elsa Sinclair is um she has a documentary a couple I think she has three now two maybe working on the third but she is, uh, the documentary is called Taming Wild. And she literally. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she's the one who gave herself 12 months to basically train this wild Mustang with no tools. Basically to see like if at the end of 12 months, this horse would offer for her to ride it. And she did. Um, Which I think kind of speaks to the power of you know, like, I think in some ways they kind of sought us out too. Like, I think there's this connection between horses and people that have obviously goes so far back, like way before us, but right. um, I think that's kind of, I don't know. I just find that really fascinating that if you put a horse in a situation where you're not controlling the food source you're not using any outside tools. At least some of them are going to choose to want to work with you just because they want to. Um, I just think that speaks volumes to who they are as individuals, as well as sentient beings and stuff like that. No, I completely agree. One of the things that I always end up falling back on when I talk, when I think, and when I talk about like the importance of horses to people is that how much of the world was built on the backs of horses? Yes. And how long have they been a part of our lives? You know, you can track the history and the development of modern society based upon like the equines that were around at the time. And that fascinates me endlessly, just generally because of who I am as a person. But 
there's always going to be this opportunity that if we, we leave the door open, that they're going to want to come in. And some of that means mm-hmm. that we just need to continue to follow with modern understanding of, I think there's this whole idea, right. And we're getting into a whole nother segue about like dominance theory and all that crap. I was taught that as a young girl. I, I think all of us were right. That doesn't mean that everything has to flip to purely positive reinforcement stuff all the time. Right. Yes. Not that there's any shame in that. I follow so many beautiful people that decide that that's their path of forces, but there's a happy middle in there somewhere where we kind of dissuade scientifically proven fact and still are able to continue what we have chosen to do and what we have selectively bred these animals to do. Um, and it can be, it can just, it, it's such a, a mental undertaking to begin to start to process that stuff, unlearn old habits, relearn new ones that are scientifically proven, um, especially in kind of traditional quote unquote horse sports, which is like, you know, show jumping, eventing, Western sports, dressage in particular, I think it comes under a lot of scrutiny a lot of the time um because it seems so unnatural to people who don't spend much time around horses when in reality the only thing that we ask horses to do in dressage that's unnatural is well there's two things one carry a rider and two counter canner and that's it Mm, yeah so we just have to be the more educations we can receive the better that we can inform our horses and create you know better partners Um, and solidify their foundations for their future, whatever that ends up being. Sometimes I just wish I want, I was like an outrider in Montana because that sounds awesome, (laughs) but that's not the path. (laughs) Yeah, I, I get that. I, I mean, so I went from being like a very, like I said, I wrote English for literally up until a year ago. Because you guys both Um, just switched to Western, right? Yeah, well, just, I, I, but relatively I, recently. Yeah, I think a year is for me, maybe, because I've done it here and there. And um, my trainer who worked with Gizmo did the Western stuff. So that's awesome. He, he yeah. had some of the buttons before I did, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I, I did the English, I did the saddle seat, hunt seat, stuff like that, played around with some dressage, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also, before we moved to Georgia, um, I'm originally from Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, the the trainer that we're going to have on in two weeks, um, she was kind of the one who introduced me to that, like, really fine middle ground as far as, like, the positive and negative and, like, this really cool symbiotic relationship. And I've mm-hmm. definitely come back to that. Um with my horses now um but she I mean I was riding her horses and I was riding western so like it's it's been something um I've played around with but yeah it's you know it's just different and now I'm less I I guess like we were talking about in that English to Western is there are some people who have found this like amazing balance in in the English world and like people like you and it's amazing. And I wish that could have been me, but that wasn't me. Like I found my balance 
in well, the Western. It's not for everyone. I mean, I don't think that anyone should be specifically prescribed yeah. to a certain discipline. I mean, that's for you to decide and for you, actually, it's really for your horse to decide ultimately. I just yeah, happened to decided into, the Western thing. Yeah. I mean, you were telling me that he was, he was uncomfortable and kind of like the traditional English saddles and all of a sudden he was kind of just happier. It didn't in, matter in what Western I tried. Pack. Yeah. Yeah. He just likes it, likes it better. It didn't matter how, um, we've spoken about this a few times on the podcast. I think so everybody's familiar. Um, it didn't matter how well the saddle was fitted, what half pad I had and nothing, it didn't matter. He just didn't. After we started with the Western saddle with the trainer that I have now, it just never kind of sat right like the same way. So yeah, um, it, that, but- that was a big reason why. And that's just you listening, you know? I mean, I've made that, that joke a ton of times where it was like, if Posey came out and she just wanted to be a peanut roller, okay, I guess I do Western now, <laughs> you know? But it's, yeah, I've not been faced with that yet, but knowing that you, the horse that you get may not be the horse that you think that you're going to get for a specific discipline or, or, or whatever you're doing is important and that's an important part of being a horse owner is the flexibility of understanding and the maneuverability of your own goals and ego yes yes i um i got gizmo to be a jumper and i actually had an animal communicator tell me a couple months ago um gizmo actually brought remy up in this particular section and i hadn't told um because he knows him he used to get turned out with him oh i hadn't told this person about Remy at all and she asked me she's like who who is this dark bay horse that he's telling me about and so I told her a little bit and um she said Gizmo feels like you might do more jumping with him if you do it at all if you do it at all um says he says that's okay he doesn't want to do that um so it just really reinforced to me um that i have made the right decision by him. He likes poles and cavalettis and little things here and there. Yeah, of course, because it's fun. Said, but, right. Um, but to actually do, do the jumping, he was not uh, not too hot on that. And I think that has a lot to do with when he first came off the track, the home that he went to after me, he was there for maybe a year or less or something. And I just kind of... um put him in an elevator bit and then right over fences like I saw some pictures of him jumping like four foot fences and he just he just did it because that's who he is he's brazen and will do anything you point him at almost but um I think he uh, was kind of put into that too quickly and he's happy to not he loves to chill he loves to do nothing but I just want to sit in the middle of the arena and just do he'll take a nap he loves it he loves to do nothing I say that about him all the time his most favorite job is nothing at all me too but same gizmo yeah yeah but absolutely back to um what you were saying about the horse you get or you know what you plan to do with the horse you get might not be what you end up doing because they tell you not a lot of people listen to that no you are Um, so right but they do, they do tell you, um, they let you know what, 
where their boundaries are as much as we let them know where ours are too. Yeah, and I think that's one of those things that people don't really consider. It's almost like, okay, so you you pick a dog, right? And that dog is meant to be your your gun dog, your hunting dog. That dog comes home and really it's like better suited for therapy dogs. You know, how do you pivot that to to benefit them and to still benefit you? Hopefully your ego isn't so tied up in their and their achievements that you are uncomfortable making those changes, but it does require people to step out of what is traditionally their comfort zone. I mean, like had either one of my horses that I have had since the beginning come out and been like, I really hate dressage. First of all, that's a lie. You hate upper level dressage. Dressage is the foundation of everything. But if you're uncomfortable and you just don't enjoy it and you want to jump instead or go be a cow pony, joy loves cattle I've been like okay i've been like okay so i guess i gotta buy a western saddle and i think we maybe need to go figure this stuff out i need to go learn some new rules because it's more about the the experiences that you get to share with them rather than the goals that you hope to achieve with them yep yeah we're, we're lucky when i got in yes Yes. Yeah. When I got re my, um, I had been working with a trainer at the time. Um, and she was so excited. She's like, we're going to do eventing with him. He's going to do dressage like this, this, and this. And I was like, okay, like he's got a really nice sport horse build. His damn side produces really nice sport horses. Right. His dad is, um, very widely known for having really nice foals. His dad's very well known he's off the uh, track mm -hmm. who's the yeah. who's the sire into mischief yeah that's a good line yeah um and then his he's out of blushing and blushing is out of a maria mon mare mm, yeah i've worked i've worked with a maria mon horse before i love him yeah um so yeah everyone's always like ah he's like made to be a sport horse um but when, so he, um, he was donated, he fractured his right front leg. Oh and, my God. Yeah. Made a full recovery. He is completely sound. Like, I mean, he is, he's a tank um, and he's amazing, um, but he made a full recovery and they took him a week after he got to the second stride in Kentucky. Um, he was donated once he was rehabbed, his connections were just like, you know, just find him a good home. Um, they took him to a cow sorting event. He was a How week off. Fun. Yeah, a week off. I mean, he'd been in rehab, but he'd still been living on the track. Um, so technically a week off the track, they threw him in Western tack, took him cow sorting. And they said he was in the middle of the herd, like did not blink an eye, nothing. Um, so that should have been my first kind of like, yeah, he's going to be a Western horse. It's a hint. <laughs> um, but then, you know, it just kind of, I guess, organically happened. He's just, he's happier. Like his, his whole demeanor just changes when you put him in Western versus English. He's just, he's just so happy. And like, I'm not going to take that away from him. So no, of course not. And I, I, there's this whole, I am not super familiar with Western tack fitting. So I'm just going to like make a disclaimer there. 
but I am familiar with the intricacies of fitting English shock with specifically like dressage and jump saddles. And it is such a, a convoluted, complicated and expensive nightmare. So it makes sense. It's a hassle, honestly. It's, it's a hassle and I, and I know it's one that we do, right? Your saddle should be checked every six months, which I do. However, it is so complicated, especially because of the types of horses that we are breeding now for dressage. Um, the, the shape of a dressage horse is changing, which means that the shape of the saddles that are being produced are also changing. And so it becomes quite hard to find saddles that fit horses that are not what I'm going to pejoratively, of course, call a more modern warm blood, which is like a really high withered, high necked, kind of long backed, weird length stifle type of horse versus like a traditional old time dressage horse, like an old world is what we call it. I'm going to send you a picture of Rian just so you can because I think you're spot on with how it, it wouldn't work yeah so Posey I have been told now after consulting with a, a, a trusted um saddle fitter because she I bred her for a specific purpose and for a specific outlook I wanted her to be what is called more old world I needed her to be more of a traditional build. She needed more bone. She needed more substance. She needed more just strength generally to hopefully get through like the Grand Prix stuff and it not be tremendously impactful on her body. Also, because it'll help her be more comfortable and move better. Um, that's not what people are breeding for anymore because I'm not cool. Um, but I've been told <laughs> that there are only four saddle trees that will fit her right now at this point in her life out of all of the wow. saddle brands in the world because she is built like a little cob pony she's got little flat shoulders little muttons and a really kind of short back and she's really thick like she's like a tootsie roll and that's not what modern saddles or dressage saddles are built for and so that becomes quite complicated especially if you do not have access to people who are educated enough to help you become educated or to help you kind of work with your tack in order to make it fit horses. Um, it, it just becomes quite a complicated endeavor. And, and I understand why it puts people off. It's not something that I enjoy doing, but it's also, I also don't enjoy going to the gyno, you know, <laughs> like I just have to, it's just one of those things. And so I can see why finding something that automatically feels so comfortable for both you and the horse makes so much sense. And it yeah. is just easy for you guys to do that. And why not be comfortable? If it feels comfortable, then go with it, you know? Yeah, yeah for sure. Than me. Yeah, I don't, I, so. Um, oh, that boy thick. He's thick. Yeah, that boy thick. <laughs> he's gotten thicker too. Um, I just, he, he's like really fuzzy right now. So you can't fully see everything. Um, How is his barrel that big? I don't know. And like, it's not like he's, he's not wormy. Like I, no, no, no. That doesn't look like very strict, um, on his like wormy. Like I'm, I'm so anal about all of that. It's ridiculous. Um, he's so big. What's really interesting is that he has quite the, the traditional kind of like shark fin wither that comes with the thoroughbred, but he also has quite a low slung shoulder point. 
And so he's yeah. got like his shoulder is really long, but it's also quite slopey, more um vertical than horizontal. Like there's not a lot of angle in that shoulder. And then he has such fascinating tie-in points. I mean, I would love to ride the heck out of this horse. I think he's a great boy. But it's just not what I expected he's... to see when you texted me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder if he's if not can... like your typical one of Gizmo too, because he's interesting. He's got the longest legs in the world. Gizmo has a he's really fascinating confirmation. Yeah, I don't know. I've I've found Rian to be like super sturdy, very sure-footed. Like he, yeah. he's very, like very comfortable to ride. And proportionally, he's correct. Right? Yeah, because so yeah. the the ideal horse in at least for like sport horse breeding is supposed to be the the length of the neck is the length of the back, which is also the length of the hip to the stifle. Mm-hmm. Right, and he's he's pretty much there yeah his neck is just a little bit lower slung than anticipated so it, you know it ties into his wither point a little lower than i thought and then he has kind of a low angle in his shoulder which is really interesting i like his hip a lot um he's got great legs but it's just he's just so round i know <laughs> it's so funny i love it he looks like the best boy ever he's gizmo sweetest and his hindquarters like he wasn't in a ton of work at that point but he's he's got got a juicy booty don't worry but like he gets so muscular so fast and um I've been really like working on building up his um front end as far as like his um I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation but his um and stuff like that you're good that's right um I don't know I've just been really obsessed with that lately and I really want him to be carrying himself correctly and be comfortable um so we've been working on that and his chest is so wide it's insane he's got like double d's yeah (laughs) yeah exactly he's like me yeah exactly (laughs) all my horses are like me and are like b's um (laughs) Abby Gizmo reminds me more of like the traditional idea of an OTTB. That's um the best picture I could find on short notice. Well, no, and um, I've seen I've seen so many photos of him. Like I love him. I see I see him all the time. But he has a more traditional off the track look than yeah, absolutely than Rand. Yeah, it, because he has the slightly more slope behind and he's got. The longer neck, his his wither tie-in is a little bit higher and his shoulder slope is a little bit pointier. So if you like look at where his, from the point of his wither to the beginning, like the end of his scapula and when yeah. it starts to become his lower limb, it's it's a higher degree of point than, right. the, than this other horse. It, it, he also just kind of looks like more the thoroughbred that I grew up working with and that all my friends use for eventing and dressage and all of that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with either one of them joy's grandsire was actually like a pretty well-known stakes winning thoroughbred and was probably the sexiest sport horse i've ever seen 
It's just a fantastic, fantastic looking animal. I mean, remarkable, so handsome and so proper. I loved it. I love it so much. My, um, my former dressage trainer really loved Gizmo when I first brought him home and she's devastated that I don't want to do dressage with him. Absolutely devastated. Um, but he doesn't like it. That's valid. And, and some people don't like it. It's a little bit much for people. What I will say is that we've come to this point in dressage where people believe that they need to have a horse that's bred for dressage to be successful. When in reality, dressage was made for the horse. Dressage was made for the gymnastic ability of the horse and to develop them. So it's kind of, it's taken a turn in a, in a way that benefits the horse market, but excludes the people who do not have the access to a quote unquote dressage horse, like a stereotypical one. Um, because like I ride a, a friend of mine's little thoroughbred, he's off the track too. And I, I love him. He's wonderful, but he has the nicest canter out of any horse I've ever ridden in my whole life. And I worked for Dutch breeders, Hanoverian breeders, Tracaner breeders. Like he has the nicest canter out of all of these horses. And he would easily be a very successful dressage horse with the, he's a little bit more foundation, of course, but just on the three basic gates alone, he'd be very successful. Just don't tell anyone he's a thoroughbred. Let him try and guess it. Yeah, I honestly, I, I'm sure there's some thoroughbreds with really awful canters, but I have not ridden one yet. So, unfortunately. Ugh, so my, fir- my first, no, 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 it's not a problem. It taught me a lot. And my first dressage horse, and I'm going to call him a dressage horse because he was a three-year-old and I was 11 and we decided to pursue uh-huh. dressage together was an appendix core. Uh, and yeah, he was an appendix core horse. So he was actually a paint. He's a chestnut and white paint that then grayed. And he oh. and I kind of worked through dressage through a second level with most of the third level stuff, excluding the changes. And he had that kind of traditional racehorse hip, the low slung neck. He was built more downhill than the modern dressage horses. And his canter was awful. Just awful. It was bone jarring. Oh, man. But it, it, mm. it really helped me understand how to, to improve the biomechanics like dressage as the foundation to improve the biomechanics of a horse's natural capability and it got better well good yeah that was a it was a really neat experience i miss that dude i hope he's doing okay he was never actually mine so i'm i'm thinking to take him with me i had a quarter horse that was like bone jarring yeah like i just didn't want to can't work that bad <laughs> It was rowdy and he was kind of like long and gangly like he tripped over poles I can he was just not cool oh, he was a he was a very good boy he taught me so much and was the most laterally inclined horse I think I've ever ridden in my whole life he taught me everything I ever needed to know about teaching lateral movements to upper level dressage horses um but he was just not like awesome. com- comfortable to ride <laughs> 
It was a labor of love. <laughs> Aw. Honestly, those are the best though. I oh, love yeah. I love a good a good project. I'm a sucker for a project. Oh yeah, of course. I'm I loved him dearly. He gave me seven years of education that I couldn't have done without him. Oh. So I Without him, I would not have had the opportunity to impart knowledge onto Joy and Posey and all those other horses that I had the opportunity to work with. So he is a good dude. That's a- so let me ask you this. I'll say metaphorically speaking. Okay. Um, <laughs> if you had like, if you had like a billboard that was going to reach the world. So, okay. you know, you can get deep with this. Oh, what would it say and why? Like if you had something to say to, let's just say the equestrian world, what would it be? Oh, oh boy. Okay. Let's not prepare for that one. Um, it's like my favorite question to ask because everybody has something different. Now it's a great question. That was a, that's a really good one. Loaded question for sure. Yes, loaded, but an excellent question. Um, I think probably the first thing is advocacy for your horse is the most important thing, no matter what that looks like and no matter where that takes you. It's different for each person, for every horse, for every discipline. So you're their voice. So you, you need to learn to stand up for them. Um, not every horse with a vagina needs to be bred. Yes. Please stop doing that. Please. I work really hard to be a part of an ethical breeding system and it's very difficult. Um, remember that moments in time do not define people or horses. Someone give me a, I need to write this stuff down. <laughs> you know, I recently, there was a, I think a friend of mine posted something on Instagram. We've been friends for a good, a good bit of time. And there's a, there's this thing going around about the FEI removing something from the, the stand book, like this, the standard road book about going behind the vertical. And absolutely. I, I'm not here to talk about that. This is a separate thing. Horses make mistakes and have to grow like we do. We all physically make mistakes when we're learning new things. So while riding a horse low, deep and round in this idea of, of Roker um, for long periods of time is of course quite bad. The idea that a horse dips behind the vertical every now and then because they are learning and they're compensating for their lack of strength is not the end of the world. And so that's one of the reasons I started posting like really long videos of me riding. Cause I was like, you don't get to take pictures out of context. You yeah. get to see the whole thing. And if you want to take it out of context, then go for it and let's have a conversation about it. So I think people are more than just a moment in time and we need to give them that credit. Um, let's see. Accolades and... Uh, titles and, and assumed training doesn't automatically need authority. You kind of need to be able to figure it out for yourself if that's someone you want to trust in that circumstance. Um, 
and that these kind of like predisposition timelines that we put onto horses mean nothing to them. And we need to be much more flexible with what happens to them and what we are willing to receive from them because they're, they're beings just like we are. If someone held me to the same standards that some people hold their horses to, I would be a miserable lump of a human being. Yep. So I think it's just important to make sure that you're following, following and engaging with the right types of people who can open your mind in certain capacities, but also you can engage with in academic discussion about those types of things. Not everything's going to fit for one horse. We all have to learn that. Actually, I wrote something down because I was at, a, at that clinic and I hadn't figured out what to, what to say about it yet. So hold on one second. Uh, nope, that, that's absolutely not what I'm going to say. <laughs> I wrote down something that says, we think that dressage and their principles are absolute static and never changing, but it couldn't be less true. So mm. in this idea that everything should work the same for the same for every single horse when in reality things are going to be uncomfortable we have to be uncomfortable without discomfort and make sure that we're benefiting that specific horse at that specific time and sometimes that is not for people outside of that to judge that's not like beating the crap out of a horse or spurring the crap out of them or bits or anything like that it means that moments of discomfort are needed to grow and so hopefully we can make those as educational as comfortable as possible for both rider and horse and pursue the ultimate goal for whatever that pair is but we need to be more flexible with the ideas of how riding should look mm. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. That was my, it was a weird, like kind of maybe hungover takeaway from a lesson that happened at 7 a.m. <laughs> that I was watching. <laughs> I think that's really it's very insightful. I think it can, I don't know. I love that. Well, thank you. I, you know, I, I compare Joy and Posey kind of at the same ages and it, it's really neat because they do share 50% of the same DNA and they couldn't be more different. And the things that I would have done to Joy at five years old, at five years old, she was a very capable dressage horse with a, a pretty significant show career and um, was really wonderful at her, you know, her quote unquote job. And Posey's not that yet. And that's okay, right? And then because they are so different, the training tactics and methods that I would use on Joy have no impact on Posey and vice versa. We have to be flexible enough as people involved in the equestrian role to adapt to the horse that we're riding that day and to not be afraid that other people are gonna judge us for what we're doing because we know it's correct for the horse at the end of the day. Even if there's a moment where you're behind the vertical, oh, it's not always because you're riding like that for hours or minutes or whatever. So right. we just got to be bold enough to take care of our horses. And that just comes with advocacy, whatever it ends up looking like. I heard Abby. I kind of heard Abby. I heard yeah. like a robot version. Said, uh, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I maybe turned into a robot for a second, but 
yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, yeah, I don't know. I, I wish that, I, I, again, like I said, I think there's a lot of growth happening. I'm excited to see how that continues. And I'm hoping that mindset kind of takes the forefront of the, of the change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it even gets bigger than this idea that just equipment that we use can be misused, right? Like I, there are certainly pieces of equipment that I disagree with, but I'm also a person who is comfortable wearing spurs. Doesn't mean that I'm right. wearing sharp spurs or anything like that, but you use them on at a certain point in education. And it's not because they are rough or I, I use spurs that are actually rubber coated round circles. Like you can roll them across your back and I think it actually feels pretty good to me. Like if someone massaged me with that, I'd be pretty good. But at certain points, like in FEI, you are required to use certain types of equipment. So what type of equipment do you use that still falls in line with your training methods and is respectful of the boundaries that you and your horse have established, right? without getting like the sharp rowel spurs or whatever the, whatever it is. I think we're moving away from equipment is the evil and training methods are the evil. And hopefully sometime those will consolidate with each other, those ideas for this next generation to then make just educated decisions about what is best for them and what is best for the welfare of their, of their horse in whatever discipline they're doing, whether that's Western or dressage or show jumping or eventing or whatever there are certainly pieces of equipment I think that need to be illegal but yeah as a, as a majority there are things that we can do better to educate the youth that will then make it easier on the next generation of horses so we just have to kind of step up to the plate and own up to our mistakes yeah I've said this a lot and I'll probably never stop saying it, but <laughs> one of my biggest pet peeves is like people just automatically hearing natural horsemanship and assuming that it means kindness. Um, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I've yes. seen it used too many times as an excuse to like my go-to is I'll never forget the day I watched someone beat their horse into the corner of the arena and trap the horse there and that was called natural horsemanship um I'll also I'm very quick to like kind of be like "Mm, I disagree but I personally just for Rian because um of who he is and I trust him with my life and he does have a shallow palate. Um, I've chosen to take him bitless just because that's great. Again, like we're not, I'm not trying to do anything. I'm not trying to like, we're just, we're happy existing and going on trails and just riding and having fun. Like that is the extent of what we do. Um, and he's happier in it, but I don't think necessarily that taking them bitless is kinder. I think that you can hurt them just as easily in bitless as you can with a bridle in the wrong hands. Anything can be detrimental. I agree. Minus the single jointed snaffle. I have an issue with that, but that's no, that's no tea, no shade. That's fine. Um, one of the problems that I tend to come across is that 
people think that everything should be able to be done bitless. And I have no problems with it. Absolutely not. Like I, I can ride all of my horses bitless and a neck rope and all of that fun stuff. Like it's, it's great, but there are in order to participate in certain events, right. Dressage in particular is built around this idea of having connection with the bit. So people who are quick to say, well, why don't they allow bitless competitors and rated competitions or FBI competitions as a legal professional, I can tell you that the dismantling of the rules and the rebuilding of such rules it is just not financially feasible nor something that they're going to undertake. Um, I, would that be great to have an option as a local show? Of course, I would love that. I think that a lot of my little schooling shows around here are actually fine with that kind of stuff. I didn't compete with a nose band. I barely wore pants. Like one time I wore polo wraps in a schooling show ring. So it really depends upon what you're looking for. But I it's not necessarily the systems that are, it's not necessarily the systems that are saying, no, I don't want that as a part of our participation. It's more the fact of you are dismantling a lot of history and dismantling mm -hmm. judging systems that require the certain type of focus and this connection to the bit, which can be done in an ethical manner, as long as you're not like, clamping mouth shut and you know all that that stuff which we don't have to get into here i i just wish that people would be more introspective about what happens within a governmental agency or not a governmental agency a, a govern like a governing body mm -hmm. because it's not just out to get the people who don't want to use a bit yeah there's a there's a lot more to it than that and because i think that it should be an option especially like i see a lot of horses go in hackmores or bozels and and eventing and show jumping and stuff like that. That's wonderful. Just in the same way that I hope that horses continue to move towards being more barefoot. But all of this tack and all of this equipment isn't going to be perfect for every single horse every single time in every single event. And yeah. so it can be it can be really detrimental to the conversation and to the participation of everyone. I mean, I think that all three of us come from different walks of life in our in our riding and what we are seeking to achieve and what we're doing right now and the horses that we are working with, that none of the setups that us have on our horses would work on the others. And that's okay, right? Because we're doing it from an educated perspective, trying to support our horses in the best way possible. Yeah. Doesn't mean I can't take off the bridle and go gallop around in the field and have a great time because I do. But it just means yep. that I can't, I can't I, legally go to an FEI competition and be like, all right, here's my horse. She doesn't have a bridle on, you know, it, yeah. it, and that's yeah, a bigger that's, conversation. That's so. kind of, yeah, I guess my thing is, is, you know, it's just as much as I obviously love the fact that I can give him this level of freedom and he's good with it and he loves it. I don't want it to be perceived as like, he's in a better situation than any other horse just because of the choices that I've made for him. And I get that a lot. Um, yeah. and that's frustrating to me because I do ride other horses, you know, in bits. I obviously not going to get into a bit discussion, but there are certain bits that I will not use. Same. We're good. We're on the same page. Educated reasons. Um, but just because I choose something for Rian based on his preferences and based on the fact that I'm not asking him to compete 
he's just like he's just my friend and we just do life together like but that doesn't mean that he's in a better situation than any other horse that's with someone who's educated I just it's just one of my pet peeves is just like don't don't disregard equipment or you know educated choices just because I've taken him the minimalistic route no and I, that makes complete sense. And frankly, I'm happy to hear someone who's in your position kind of talk about that because I feel like when people tend to go one way, it can be a little aggressive that this is the only way. Yeah. Which is not the truth at all. And I think we all know that. Um, because how would love if we could all just kind of go bitless at all competitions all the time? That'd be great. Or, I mean, most of the time I would go out and hack and do my trail rides or my gallop sets and like my fitness work without a bridle. I just pop on a halter. I don't, it doesn't, you don't need it is the idea. But the fact that you are required to learn how to work with it in order to participate in certain things is something we have to respect. And I think it's honestly a really good idea to understand how to properly use equipment. I think that's something needs to be taught. Um, because again, the more, you know, um, so for people to have a, like a well-rounded education in all things, as far as, you know, understanding how to ethically use things, I wish we saw more of that. And I, well, and, and to be perfectly honest, that's one of the reasons I don't use double bridles. Is, yeah. And it's not because I disagree with the use of a double bridle. The double bridle came around because of the cavalry, right? Like mm-hmm. we needed that. And that makes sense. I have never been educated enough in a, in a program to feel like I am a person who can ethically use a double bridle in training practices. Not that I would be aggressive or crazy about it, but because I feel like, well, if I can do it with a snaffle, why would I add this in, especially if I don't why have not? kind of help me? Right, exactly. Like, why would I not use this rather than this? Um, why use more when you can use less? Yeah, and they've changed the rules yeah. in dressage so you can compete at the national levels and the FEI tests just using a Snapple, which is great. But, and, and it's not to say that like Joy knows how to wear a double bridle. I have a double bridle. I've never done any real work in it. I've taught her to hack out in it and be comfortable because I know it fits her mouth, but it's not something that I use. If it was something that I was required to use because of the rules of, you know, dressage like they used to be, then I would have talked to someone and tried to figure out how to finesse that type of work. But I'm the first person to tell you that I ride in a snaffle because I don't think that my hands and my brain are educated enough to ride with two reins. And a lot of people think that it's a status symbol And it's not, it's something that you really need to be educated enough about. And I'm just not, maybe I will be at some point, but if I can do it in a snaffle, why would I do it in a double? Yeah. I love that. I think, yeah, there just has to be common sense with anything that you're doing. Just imagine that common sense. (laughs) It's amazing. It's such such a great idea. It's a novel thing. I think really common sense what is that (laughs) um I just I kind of I don't know I feel like 
the the older I get and obviously like the the more horses that I've been exposed to and have had the privilege of taking care of it's just like kind of what's the what's the next right thing and you just try yeah. to figure it out and continue continue to educate yourself as much as you can yeah absolutely and I think the same thing goes for like for shoeing and for mm-hmm. I mean I, I think equipment is kind of like a part of shoeing to be honest I had horses that were barefoot for years you know and when I moved Posey to the facility where she is right now, where she has 24 hour turnout, she's got friends, she's got a huge hay hut that constantly has forage in it. But we're in South Texas where we used to be underwater, right? Like this used to be an ocean. So we have really hard rock. And so this is built in kind of like a ravine and she chipped away her feet so much that she was sore, you know? So, you know, again, something that I had initially planned was like, I didn't really want to have to shoe her initially, but it made her more comfortable for right now. And it doesn't mean it's forever. And I get that there are long-term effects for shoeing, but we've been shoeing horses for so long. It doesn't mean that we can't do better, right? Or that this is just like a forever thing. It means that if this is what makes her comfortable right now and is not going to cause her long-term damage in the next year, then it's okay to me. Yeah. You know, it's it's just the next right thing. Yep. It's it's just the next right thing. Exactly. So, you know, at some point, if we move to a different property and it's got the the type of facility where she can be barefoot or we can begin to transition to barefoot, I'm ready. I'm happy to do it. But if it's the next right thing to make her comfortable, her comfort's my priority rather than my ethics. Yep. Or what the internet ethics tell me that I should be doing. That's, there you go. The internet. Love that. Internet ethics. How fun. (laughs) They're so great. Great, great things and great people. And then there are some things, obviously that, you know, TikTok trainers and Instagram trainers and all. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) I can't make the verbal noise for that on this podcast, but yeah, I I agree. Uh, and I think we're getting to a point where things are becoming more divisive than I've seen them previously. And I, I'm lucky enough to have friends on kind of both sides of the field, right? That like, I think that both of you kind of run in the middle. You're like the moderates here. And then I've got like the far lefties and I've got like far righties when it comes to equipment and training. And it's really interesting to see where they hang their hats and what education they hang their hats on to make the decisions that they do. Um, it, it's a fascinating, fascinating thing, but it, it can be marginalizing to a lot of people. I think that really just want to try and gather as much information to be as good as they can to their horse. And sometimes that means making mistakes. And sometimes that means making decisions that are not popular. Right. And that's really tough to share. And the whole point of us having this, like this whole Instagram group, and I'm so grateful to have connected with people like you guys. And I have, a, a, I think some of my closest friends I've made on the internet, <laughs> you know, is that we all kind of respect each other's understanding that we're all doing this for the best of our horse with our horse. It, it's a horse led endeavor. Sometimes it's going to look different than other people's. 
but we're all just doing our best. And so we really need to cut each other a lot more slack for that. Mm, I think yeah. personally, it's one of my soapboxes, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I've met more people through this avenue that I would trust my horses with um, just based on the way that they, you know, obviously like go about making educated decisions for their horses. Like I trust that at the end of the day, the, the horse's best interest is at the heart of things. And that's some one that one, like I want to surround myself with, but also I can respect that because I know given the opportunity like you're, they're not going to actively try to do wrong by the horse. No. And one of the things and I, I know we've been talking for a long time, but you've, you've touched on like every single thing that I've been thinking of this week. I mean, every single thing that I've been struggling with this week is that there's this idea that people who comment on horse welfare and horse, um, on horse sports generally and education and training and stuff like that have never made mistakes. And I think it's really important to us as a group and as a, as a connective community to say that we have made mistakes and that we have acted rashly or out of anger, or we've been human, right? We're not all perfect all the time. And like I said earlier, the only thing that we can do is be better than the person we were the day before. And that's the only, I mean we're all guilty of something that doesn't mean you're like, you know, there are so many, so many options of abuse to, to use as an example, but it doesn't mean we do any of those things. Sometimes it just means that we overreact or we, because we're human, we act in a way that's meant to protect ourselves. And because of that, it, it negatively impacts the horse or, or things like that. And in training, sometimes we fall prey to people that we think are authority figures. Let me realize in hindsight, maybe that's not what we want to follow. And so we go back and we work hard, but we all need to give each other a lot more deference for making mistakes, learning from those mistakes and being better. It's okay. All we can do is be better than we were the day before. And the only person that we are responsible to is our horse. So why don't we just focus on that rather than past errors or misguided judgment or there are plenty of things to list but if we can just be better each day than we were previously or at least acknowledge the things that we've done wrong and educate ourselves moving forward then we're already we're doing the right thing we don't need to be scolded we don't need to be canceled or internet shamed or any of that nonsense we know what we're doing no one wants our dirty laundry aired publicly so why don't we just try and support each other through it? Because I think that would be a lot more successful than a lot of the things that people try to do. So Yeah, 100%. Abby, do you have anything else you want to cover? No, I think that's, that's all good. We've touched on a lot. A lot. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm a talker. <laughs> no, it's okay. Me too, definitely. Literally, I, yeah. It was definitely a good conversation for sure. Sure. (laughs) I think I've worn all of us out emotionally. 
it's just a lot like not in a bad way at all it's just a lot to think about and like yeah I I don't know I I mean it's all stuff that we've been talking about and yeah of course and you know stuff that like is constantly in the bombarding yeah yeah yeah. it's just I don't know it's all good and it's all stuff that we need to talk about I think sometimes like the weight of it just kind of like hits you like (laughs) yeah yeah I 100% agree I think there's this it can be really hard and overwhelming, right? To, to think about the, about the magnanimity of it all. And then you add in this, like this additional concept. And I promise this is my last one. I promise of, oh, fuck. And now I lost my train of thought. It's derailed at the station. Um, about our mental health and how it's tied into our horses. Right. I, personally think that my horses are responsible for like my preteen and teenage success doesn't mean I didn't make mistakes but it meant that I was a more reasonable human being than I could have been but as I became a younger adult in my my late teens my early 20s I realized how negatively my my mental health was tied into my horses and so there's this toxic idea that going to the barn is supposed to be the escape and it's supposed to be the therapy when in reality that is completely misguided and does not allow for people to feel like if the barn isn't enough that they're allowed to seek help elsewhere. Mm. And that is one of the things that I really struggle with, with people, not with myself. I know for the fact that horses are a huge part of my mental health, but they also are a detriment. Mm. Yes. So seeking professional help outside of that in some capacity can be really beneficial And there's no reason to feel guilty if you go into a barn and you feel weight in your heart because of any of the things we've talked about this evening, right? Like people, peers, authority figures, mistakes, guilt, shame, all that crap. It comes with us to the barn all the time and we have to face it every day. So why should we be telling people that they should feel enlightened when they go to the barn every day? rather than it's a part of their mental health journey and they need to seek additional support rather than feeling like the internet is guilting them into feeling that it's a church and you should only feel good about it yes 100 percent. well thank you for spending literally the biggest portion of the night with us it was of course amazing thank you so much so so much for having me on and letting me get on my soapboxes and being dramatic and ridiculous and I I really appreciate it I think that the the horsey world is better with people like you guys in it so I think you're going to be a really positive impact on this next generation and the people that those are listening to so thank you we thank you for joining us it was great of course anytime just let me know I'm happy to happy to be here we'll have to do this again anytime (laughs) amazing okay guys make sure that you follow bailey over at joyful dressage if you are not already and we'll see you guys in the next episode